Digital Drift, episode 47, recorded Tuesday the 16th of December 2014, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, Theatrical Edition. Thorin, you gave a promise. You brought upon them only ruin and death. On the mountain, is that not enough? Now we defend it. I came to reclaim something of mine. This was the last move in a master plan, a plan long in the making. These bats are bred for one purpose. For war. Leave Sauron to me. Bilbo is right. You cannot see what you have become. Everything I did, I did for them. You started this. You will forgive me if I finish it. When faced with death, what can anyone do? I will not hide while others fight our battles for us! But one question to answer. How shall this day end? Hello and welcome once again to the review of the third Hobbit film. As with the first two, we are just going to focus on what we have just seen at the cinema. This means we'll be keeping nearly all talk of our re-evaluation of the previous two in hindsight and the three movies as a whole for next year's extended edition trilogy review. This will give us the benefit of being able to analyse the body of work for what went on behind the scenes as well as its absolutely complete and extended edits and all the the extra information that they provide, thus bringing this more in line with our Lord of the Rings movie reviews, which of course we had a decade of familiarity with. With me tonight are of course Sharon Shaw, my wife and co-host. Good evening. Returning once again, we have Middle Earth Review Series mainstay, Chris Eason of Gameburst. Ahoy, ahoy. Joining Chris, formerly of Gameburst, we have returning to finish off the trilogy he started with us two years ago with an unexpected journey, Mr. James Batchelor. Hello, thank you very much for having me back. You're very welcome. We missed you last year. And for the first time on the Middle Earth Reviews, Glenn Watts of the Digital Drift community. Hi there. Hello. Before we start, though, my thoughts, because they're very pertinent now and they're going to be different in a year's time. And obviously, if you guys feel similarly or completely different, then chime in after I've laid my soul bare. I'm grieving. 
I came out of the cinema after being on an emotional high, like it's going to happen. I can't do it just like for about a year, two years. I mean, as long as basically I've been looking forward to this since Return of the King, like the idea that they might actually go back and do it again and do it properly and finish it. And obviously for the last two films, it's been like, you know, it's sort of like born up in the river of it, but now it's finally over. And, um, I came crashing down in the evening and I got very, very sad and very, very tense and, and almost angry. And then I spent uh, the next day very washed out and then came back at an emotional high yesterday, Monday, and then spent the rest of most of today really angry and frustrated. And I've been going through an emotional ringer. And like I said, I, I equate it with grieving, like I'm mourning the passage of this, but it actually also feels... Or, or more specifically, like I would imagine it feels saying goodbye to your child as they grow up and go off to college. Like you've done the best you could and you've got to sort of let them go. Now, obviously, I had nothing to do with making these films, so I can't claim that pride that it takes with sort of seeing your child off. But it's that sense of having them around all the time and then they're finally gone. And you know that when they come back, chances are they're never really going to be back, back. And water. This is the evacuation of Lake Town, following immediately on from what have we done? For me, you really could tell that you were coming into a film that was meant to be part of another film. I don't get me wrong, it was it was great that he got started straight away. I did start to wonder if, like the previous Lord of the Rings and the uh, the Desolation of Smaug, I did wonder if they were gonna do some sort of weird flashback to kind of ease people into the film. And then, oh, by the way, there's a massive friggin' dragon. Yeah. Um, but like they just have went... the dwarves talking on the mountaintop for a bit, saying, oh, we've just let let loose the dragon. And what are we going to do now? And yeah. now to the dragon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the fact they went straight in is like, right, I am hooked. I am in. This is brilliant. However, it did kind of feel a little bit like when you're flicking through the TV channels and you come across a film that's halfway through and think, yeah, I'll watch the end of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of did feel that, but... Um, I, I really like the sequence where then it just stops and then there's a, a sort of quite a big tonal shift. There's lots of action and then they're just suddenly at the shores like I don't. It, it just suddenly slows, which I don't think anything worked. And it did feel like oh, this was supposed to be tacked on to the, the end of the second film, hmm. but we needed to make up time for in the third film or something. The, is the equivalent would be uh, you know the fight at um, Osgiliath in Return of the King, which hmm. is then followed by a lot of uh, talking in uh, Minas Tirith uh, regarding what what's then to be done, and um, but but that comes after a good amount of sort of like easing you into the Return of the King and saying right okay it's been a night. Now we're going to come back around, and um, and and here is the, the film. It is going to be very hard for me not to talk about the two film edit. I've been working out uh, over this past year, basically how when I uh, obtain all the DVDs, I will be able to uh, create for myself a fan edit. Two fan edits, in fact. One two film version, basically scissoring out the new stuff that uh, was added to pad to texturize slash pad out <laughs> the uh the the uh, three film structure 
uh, and basically deliver uh, what they originally intended at some point along the way before they changed it to three and basically be able to watch that and go, right, how would that have actually worked to sit through? And another version, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, where I literally just put what was in the book on film. It's going to be a four hour long series of action sequences. <laughs> <laughs> this this opening bit, I the, the thing that I really felt sorry for was I felt sorry for Spaug. Because <laughs> yes! he, oh. even even though even though I know I know, even though I knew having read the book just before Unexpected Journey came out, even though I knew that Smaug doesn't last long when he gets to Lake Town and is killed off pretty quickly and pretty unceremoniously. The fact that the whole of the first film, they keep mentioning that there's a dragon. The whole of the second film builds up to his reveal, and he's wonderful when he's there. And then in this one, he's killed off before the title sequence, like the actual title comes up. It's the equivalent of killing off a Bond villain in the cold open. So, like, you only live twice? Yes. <laughs> yes. So Smaug comes back at the end and he actually killed his clone. Yes. Ah, uh, no, sorry, Diamonds Are Forever. I'm going to correct you on Bond thing there. Oh, no, um, you're absolutely right. It's it's Bond who gets killed at the beginning of You Only Live Twice. It's Bond, yeah. But yep, sorry. Regardless, Bond, sorry. another day. So, um, yeah, oh, okay, I, well, I, well t- uh, which one was it? The uh, Which Roger Moore one was it? Was it Octopussy or... Uh, uh, For Your Eyes Only, where they, they killed kill the, the bloke in the wheelchair who's probably Blofeld, but not yes. named. Um, but yeah, I just it was just a shame that they've got this absolutely fantastic vi- villain hmm. who they built up so well. And Benedict Cumberbatch was such a fantastic performance, uh, you know, as him. Because when I read the books, even when like, I was reading the books at a younger age, I kind of pictured a Christopher Lee esque voice. Hmm. Um, and obviously, Christopher Lee is elsewhere in the film, so it'd be slightly jarring if he was uh, also the dragon. So Benedict I would Cumberbatch not part was... with a single coin. Yes. They, they, they do that with Benedict Cumberbatch anyway. He's Sauron and Dragon. He's which, everyone. Yeah, he, yes. he's doing two voices which are incredibly similar. Yeah, um, it was just, it was just a shame. Like, and, and it, I think that's the biggest victim of the the three edit, two edit mm. cuts. I suppose if you did, yeah, I mean, but even, if you had to kill, still keep it three, and you killed Smaug at the end of Desolation. It would be a much even shorter third part. And how many people would even bother coming to see it? Because they want to see the dragon. Yeah. It did seem to catch quite a lot of people in the cinema where I went to see it by surprise. I don't know if they've asked people who hadn't read the book, but <laughs> yes. there, was a, there was a very audible gasp of <gasps> the fact that he was kind of done with before they, we got to the credits. Uh, two things I loved. I mean, uh, uh, there were a lot of things I loved about this sequence, but uh, the, the ones that really stuck out for me were... Um, uh, Bard having to set up a makeshift cross uh, windlass. Uh, actually, you said windlass, Chris, and they actually said windlance in the film. I know, because that's windlance isn't a real thing. Windlass is. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> I, I believe. <laughs> Chris is right, the film is wrong. Um, um, a wind thing. Hey, it involves an arrow. I will believe Chris is right and the film it, is he wrong. He made a big <laughs> old crossbow out of his head. Technically, episode. it's not actually. A, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a pulley system, but still, you can make that into a crossbow. I tell you what, if, if they ever make more of these, can we just pull our money together and send Chris to uh, New Zealand? <laughs> oh, as I, the yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely do that. I want to go to New Zealand and pay See, me. Yes. Every time they, they talk about David Saylor, the uh, the uh, linguist who they send all their elf-related stuff to, I'm like, I've got the archery-related David Saylor <laughs> on the line right now. You need this guy. Yeah, I, well, they did because there are problems. <laughs> <laughs> 
they need you to iron out these archery creases. Agreed, agreed. Anyway, he makes a bow out of his son, and it's a it's a lovely intimate moment. And um, the fact that what? It's the way you said it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> kind of implied these like chopped him into bits and used his bones. Just imagine the spine as the the actual bow, and you're pulling back. Yeah. Well, technically, he's using them as a tripod. Um, yeah. Or with two legs, a bipod. <laughs> Sorry. Not anyway, any better. <laughs> when Smaug starts coming down the street towards him, I don't know if everyone who's seen the desolation of Smaug and listened to the commentaries, most people in the audience probably hadn't listened to the commentaries, but they delineate Smaug himself as a psychopath. Um, somebody who believes themselves. It's, it, his way of seeing the world is that if he ceases to exist, the world may cease to exist, exactly like Voldemort. He just, he is entirely self-interested and he has this incredible power of life and death over people and lords over them as a result. So his his horrific threatening of Bard and Bane as he's sort of marching down the street towards them, just trying to strike terror into their hearts. He could have just like puffed a, a, a breath of fr- flame at them from miles away. But the point is he wants to see them squirm. He's a terrifying villain. Uh, and uh, they've, they, they took the character as written and just augmented it in the same way as they did with Gollum and, and went like, okay, right. What Tolkien has done here is created a person with this psychological construct. And that, that is a, for me is a triumph of the series to be able to actually make that out of Smaug. He's terrifying. I think particularly, and I agree with you on that, I think, but I think uh, the, the way that it comes across so masterfully with Smaug is that uh, you, you see this initially when he starts talking with Bilbo, his, defining characteristic if you like is that he bores so easily Mm. um, that he finds the world and everything in it incredibly dull that's why he hasn't left his pit for years and years and years and he will engage um, conversationally or destructively according to how his whim takes him just to keep himself interested, you know, mm. just because he's bored and he wants something to entertain him. That's why he's killing you flattery. Exactly. But if, if killing you slowly will um, entertain him slightly longer than killing you quickly, then that's what he'll do. Mm. I'm almost tempted to let you take it. Oof. Yeah, uh, another fantastic performance from Cumberbatch. Um, really can't wait to see this guy just hit the A-list and stay there. I think uh, he has. I'd, I'd say if, he's, he's, he's one lead role away from that. Well, he's, I mean, he's been major villain in numerous series now. So, mm. Having said that, I mean, just being playing the dragon, people don't necessarily associate you with the character in the same way that Andy Serkis ain't getting an Oscar for Gollum. Yeah. True, true. And I mean, even even his additional character, it's still not really recognisable as him if you don't know yeah. it's him. Yeah. Also, the master. Great to see him squashed by a dragon. And <laughs> uh, but there's a wonderful bit of visual storytelling when Smaug flies up and up and up, just like terrified of his own mortality, because that's when he's talking about Lake Town with their longbows and black arrows. That was the closest he ever came to death before when Girion loosened that scale. And uh, he must have 
looked at that wound on himself over and over over the years and just thought about it but tried not to think about it if you know what i mean he tasted mortality a little that day so just the word black arrows is enough to make him crack a little bit so when one why he decided to um torment bane and bard because you made me or at least your great-grandfather made me bleed my own blood I don't know. He's, he's certainly uh, one of his greatest sins, apart from wrath, is pride. But yeah, so he's flying up and up and up, and he's got this panicked expression on his face. His eyes and mouth go from on to off, and he plummets down. This wonderful bit of like cinematic, and now we have a dead dragon. Yeah, I liked in that bit we sort of see the the wound. It was you know you could see sort of like fire uh, escaping almost yeah. from it. It's like um, a little look on Bard's face when you realise he's seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just nitpick. Oh, <laughs> of course you can, Chris. What kind of podcast do you think this is? That bow thing is bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> you, firstly, you could not shoot an arrow that heavy for a bow. It would not go that far. It would just drop. Um, secondly, if you break it, you, you, you know, you're not going to do much with it. And uh, thirdly, he he made it longer so the, str- the string would not reach. <laughs> if you try to make it reach, it would just snap the uh, snap the the limbs again. So. Oh my god! <laughs> I so completely agree. They they needed to get David Saylor on. Uh, uh, sorry, get, needed to get you on there for for the uh, for the archery I bit. I don't know why they couldn't just have the wind lance magically survive and maybe use his son as the cause the, you know the arrow rest broke. They so just stand there. And, to actually have something a bit more believable. Tension. Literal tension, Chris. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's 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 such a sort of by rote scene. He turns up, we've been told about the Black Arrow over and over again. In the um if you remember the, the Rankin Bass version, he turns up, sets the fire up the town on fire a bit, and Bard fires one arrow at him and he's dead. It takes yeah. all of thirty seconds. Yeah. You gotta take a bit longer for the actual film. It is a lot it's a lot more believable that it's not just an arrow that he's actually a, a yeah metal arrow but yeah it's just that it's I, a night arrow <sighs> <laughs> actually it has the twirly bit at the front is to put um i think it's to put um cloth in to make it a fire arrow but ah i see so um, it can be a day arrow can be a day arrow um but i, I just wished i know i can understand them doing it longer i just wished it They've done it longer. So I like, I like the rest of the scene. It's just that bit. I, I, I have got a bit of pedantry, which is equal or greater than that, Chris. So I will freely admit that I'm in the same camp as you is the one thing that just drove me nuts. But I'll, we'll get to that in a bit. I'll let you guys guess what it is. I think I know what it is. <laughs> Assuming it's the same bit I found very irritating. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. So Lake Town recovers. Chris, from the sounds of it, you didn't really like this bit. Uh, it's where they put themselves back together. Yeah, I just felt it. Just all the tension dropped, and I, I just, I, I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I just didn't like that. I, I don't know. It didn't feel right. Um, I don't because it was just like all oh, you have all this big action scene. There just suddenly all the the momentum stops, and I know that's the point. But it, it just felt like it. The smile bit should have been at the end of the second film, and then this is like the intro to the new film, maybe with a because then it leaves some time to do a flashback. Maybe just like uh, smell zooming in, uh, you know, firing the town, then doing the spinning up in the air and then falling back and then eating to, to, 
Yeah, I mean, it, technically speaking, yeah. uh, if you look at Return of the King, that takes a long time for the action to really start heating up. You don't necessarily need a sequence as huge as the Smaug one. Yeah, I yeah. just I just felt it was weird that it it's sort of opened with that and then just suddenly dropped to oh we just we're now all homeless and on the on the sheet of the, the lake shore. But I, th- I think part of the problem is that you you don't really know or care about anyone in Lake Town <laughs> because we only we only met Bard's family. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Which who in this film seemed to just come down to screaming children. I remember that washerwoman who was uh, uh, mean to Alfred. Well, oh, righteously yeah. so. I didn't remember the washerwoman. I thought she was new. But like, no, no, she was in I the just, she was in the extended edition of uh, Desolation a little bit more. Yeah, I just you didn't. There was no one there aside from Bard who we already saw like in the you know, wrapped up in the the action. There's no one there to really pull you into worrying about these people that's why they it's left not like, some of the dwarves there so that you'd be like oh my god these dwarves might die yeah possibly yeah. but lord of the rings the um, and uh, uh, when, when rohan is under attack and you see uh eowyn looking after the people then that's our kind of link you know we worry about the people because we're worried about eowyn there was no one here for me to worry about so i just I, it just felt like it was going on a little bit too long it does feel, actually, now that you mentioned Rohan, uh, like uh, if they'd make, kept this as the two-film structure, I'm trying not to talk about the two-film structure, but if they'd kept it as that, it would have felt like Fellowship a little bit longer, followed by Two Towers a little bit longer, mm. in, in that same sort of sense. It wouldn't have had that Return of the King payoff in exactly the same way. It would have been wrapped up more neatly at the end of Helm's Deep. But you know, we'll talk about that next year. I, I kind of need to see those edits to basically really make a proper uh, idea of it. But but yeah, they did feel a lot like Rohan. I really had started to care about, um, uh, was it Tilda? And uh, what's the other one? Stigrid. 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 Uh, Stigrid. And, uh, and, and Bane, um, the, the spawn of, um, of Bard. In fact, I... I had actually already begun to sort of think that Bard was actually kind of wet behind the ears and boring, um, watching Desolation several times. But he kind of redeemed himself in this by being very grey, very stern and very action worthy. Not necessarily particularly um, deeper of a character, but definitely had his heart in the right place and was definitely the the sort of the stand up guy. While we're on the subject of the Lake Town people, because I don't really want to discuss them too much later. Alfred. Ah, yes. Completely unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> I just every yeah. time he was on the screen, I just kept thinking, like, the only reason you're here is because you're going to have a really grisly death later, and I was denied even that. He is the Jar Jar of this film. Technically, they tease, yes, they tease the, it, don't they? Over and over again. They do. It starts, yeah. it starts here. It starts here, and then almost every scene he's in, it's like this is the scene where he's going to get it. <laughs> He's the he film that stops uh, the heaviness from getting too great, especially for the children. Uh, he serves a purpose. He is used heavy-handed. Yeah, I think and he's I have also there. Not the first person to complain about him. I think he's also there because in the book, the master's supposed to survive. Yeah, I think they kept him around as the link to the sort of the, the power structure. I don't know if also to represent they- temptation for Bard. He gets the same complaints that um, a lot of people have with the character of Reaver in the Fable games, which is that he doesn't get any payback for the things he's done. Mm. You kind of want him to at least suffer a little bit. The character of Reaver played by? That would be Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But then again, it's not fair. and It is not a fair world, and that's uh, that's a good way of um, uh, uh, making that plain. Alfred gets to walk away. Thorin doesn't after having redeemed himself. I want no problems with the actor playing him. I think he's done a 
pretty good job of it. It's a oh, yeah, yeah. Tr- tricky he, he character. Was, he was pretty good. It was just, it was the character overall, and I just felt he didn't need to be there as much as he was. He was he was a more interesting character in the second movie than he was in this one. Mm. See, I know we don't particularly want to talk about the extended thing, but there's lots of nice stuff with him and Stephen Fry on the documentaries, seeing them, them bond as actors. It's yeah. Because you know, Stephen Fry's a veteran actor and the guy playing Alfred's relatively new to movies. So. Ryan Gage, yes. You know, he's kind of new to movies. You get the whole of him. Um, he's being mentored almost through it. It's kind of it's kind of nice to watch. Yeah. yeah watching the second one uh, again, uh, I watched it last Saturday, he does remind me a bit of a, like a, a lighter version of Wormtongue. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is obviously what they were driving at. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if they just wanted to keep him erect because I mean, they, they sort of got rid of Wormtongue quite Way quickly. too quickly and easily. <laughs> yeah. um, there was a tragedy about Wormtongue, which Alfred obviously doesn't have. I think I actually... See, this this whole section after the um, the demise of Smaug and the whole, um, you know, people of Lake Town wondering where to go and what to do next, I really enjoyed this whole section because I think, mm. for me, it was one of the things that actually distinguishes this trilogy from The Lord of the Rings um, in the sense that it's, it is both uh, distinctly lighter and slightly more... Um, not real, that's not really the word that I'm driving at, but Lord of the Rings is very heavy on the drama and the, the language that's used in it is, uh, it's extremely mythical and almost biblical. Yeah. And Yeah, exactly. And, th- and that's obviously what Tolkien was trying to, um, to create and to present. But um, There's a bit the more Hobbit, kitchen sink drama in this. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's just the idea that after this massive dramatic, uh, you know, we've, we've been attacked by the most destructive force that our world is aware of, but then you move on to the idea that after that comes the rebuilding and, you know, you have to put things back together again. And uh, although initially I got slightly annoyed by the repetition of, um, you know, Bard says, no, 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 I don't want to be leader, and then... Um, Alfred does something shitty, and sorry, I can't. Um, we're not swearing in this, are we? You can swear. Oh, okay. Uh, well, <laughs> Alfred does something underhanded. Let's put it that way. Um, and then Bard has to kind of step in and, and take a leadership role, even though he doesn't really want to. And that's not brought about by any one dramatic scene where the whole town goes down on their knees and says, "Bard, we want you to be our leader." It's because he realizes through a number of minor incidents that if he doesn't step in and take charge, then Alfred will, and then it will all go to hell again. There is an element that these are kind of ordinary people sorting their own lives out, whereas a lot of what's happening in the Lord of the Rings movies is the, the lords and the kings that exactly. people that sort it exactly. out. Exactly. This is not the king stepping in and, and sort of, you know, taking his rightful place and special blood and destined <laughs> bloody this and bloody that. It's people who are doing things because they have to for the, the people that they personally care about. Uh, also, on this uh, Lakeshore moment, uh, you get uh, Tariel and... Keely, you know what? We'll talk about the actual the the, uh, the overarching importance of the uh, uh, relationship at the point when it comes to a head uh, with, with Keely and Tariel. But um, it at the this early stage, they could have gone for full melodramatic um, Titanic levels of, uh, or even worse, <laughs> uh, Attack of the Clones levels of uh, <laughs> of awful romance. But they actually was quite impressed with how sparing they kept it. These two are very rarely in each other's company. And um, 
Keeley doesn't really push it. He he expresses himself very passionately, gives her a stone and backs the hell away. He doesn't See, hound that, her. I think, though, that's the distinction between um, uh, Tariel and uh, the, the relationship that she has with Keeley and Arwen's relationship with Aragorn. They have a history together. They are already a couple. They have all of this interaction and all of this involvement mm. that goes on <clears throat> way before we come along. Tariel and Keeley, it's all about potential it's all about what this could be and what it could mean and what ultimately you know it never will um and i think that's why it being handled with such a light touch works even though it was frustrating not to see more of it if that makes sense mm. i did have to try very hard not to laugh at the whole hey legolas is standing right behind you moment <laughs> <laughs> Leg- the conversation suddenly stops as everyone realises he's there. There was many times that I thought, it's Legolas, here to ruin your drinking water. <laughs> he just kept turning up. Like, um, at the point when, uh, uh, at the end of the Desolation of Smaug, he rides off across the bridge after Bolg, and then he turns back up again at the beginning of this, and is like, oh, where have you been while a dragon's been wrecking our town? Yeah. Might have saved That's a few exactly lives. exactly what I thought. Like, as soon as he turned up, it's like, seriously, where have you went? He could have taken down Smaug, but that still only counts as one. Yeah. It would have been fine. Now, that's a fine point. Ha- actually, I don't think Smaug could have stood a chance against CGI Legolas. No. <laughs> He'd have swarmed all over him, found that gap and flipping yeah. arrow Re- in the side. Real Legolas, Playboy Orlando Bloom, has nowhere near the powers of CGI Legolas. But CGI Legolas is in top form in this film. <laughs> Let me tell you, folks. Legolas, as in Orlando Bloom's CGI brother. Let's let's leave while those. We're on, while we're on Legolas, briefly, yep. um, my considerably better half. Um, part of the condition of, of having time to record this podcast is that I express this point. Uh-huh. Something's been bothering her all the way through all three Hobbit films. Something about Orlando Bloom looking wrong. His head's and, too big now. <laughs> well, slightly is his head's too big. He's out, but we worked it out. They've 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 digitally changed his eyes to to blue. Oh really? In, he doesn't wear the uh, contacts. No, they they just look a little bit too blue. They look a little bit too um, dead. too digital, too dead. <laughs> and when you go back to watch um, the Lord of the Rings, he's a lot. It's a lot darker eye. Yeah, I think yeah. Almost brown in points. And it's yeah. And you can it's see just... the character behind him, the actual actor. Yes. I um I did really notice that in the, the Lake Shore scene when he pops by, it's just like you look wrong. Yeah. It's like he looked fine in the second film, but in this one, in just that scene, it's like no, there's something wrong. <laughs> So slight digital meddling where practical would have been way better. Hmm. <clears throat> it's not exactly plagued, this series. Not in a kind of way that kills it, like a gammy leg, but it's certainly like a case of an itchy rash. <laughs> 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 Something you can't stop scratching in public and maybe makes you look a bit unbecoming. Speaking of which...
white council at Dol Guldur. Now this is going to divide people, I think. Um, some might not have liked this bit. This is uh, all of the um, stuff regarding Dol Guldur and the Necromancer and the White Council and Gandalf Smith's givings and uh, Radagast the Brown all culminates here. It all comes to a head at this point. Was it worth it to you guys? I loved this bit. The that whole storyline, that whole the whole tie into the Lord of the Rings and that side is a large part of the reason why I loved that they made three films out of the Hobbit, that they were gonna fully explore that storyline. And you know what? I really hope I'm as active as Christopher Lee when uh, when I'm his age. <laughs> <laughs> <It's totally laughs> badass. It is incredible. This is by far my favourite part of the movie. Wow. It's, yeah. I I just loved seeing the whole of the White Council doing their thing. It's a really, really well choreographed fight scene with a very interesting depiction of the ring race this time. They don't look like they've looked in any of the other movies. Yeah. They've got yeah. this more kind of ghostly king king aspect to them rather than being in draped in cloth. You're seeing essentially what's underneath. Yeah. They, they looked like they've been rotoscoped. It looked like an old, old film effect, which was really creepy. Yeah, I don't know if they're trying to get sort of like somewhere in the middle because I've seen... Uh, uh, unexpected they're in they're, they're sort of like they are what you see in Fellowship yeah uh, it was uh, just in the ring world it's, it's uh, I think it's um, the Witch King who's going to need to get his knife back at some point yeah <laughs> and then it. yeah they, they've sort of gone for that was my favourite knife what they looked like before they died I assume and then mm. I don't know if that's sort of like showing a progression to sort of corporeal form that I loved the um, White Council stuff um, mm-hmm. especially I liked the um, that you get a sort of action action music driven Delphine when uh, Elrond is introduced which yeah, I love yeah. and uh, his armor is fantastic it and is. you get to see um, Frad, 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 Frad Fang Had that's yeah. uh, Arwen's uh, mother's and also Elrond's wife's sword yeah which he, well he definitely used it in Lost Lion oh yeah he didn't totally did yeah and then uh, they gave it to Arwen um, and the only problem I had with it is that it was too quick As I in, don't know it was just it, it. There was not enough time. I it think was, it was done felt, too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if See, that, that's why I thought they'd be bringing out Anatar. Like uh, Saruman says, "Leave Sauron to me," and then Sauron actually turns yeah. up at that point, or yeah. like you know, some extra stuff to do with that, and then yeah. he sort of like walks down the steps towards them and goes, "I see my And like the trailer, yeah, from the trailer, that's what I expected it to be. Yeah, like, they were leading um, you that way. My gut uh, feeling is that when we see extended version of this movie, this is a scene that's going to be quite a lot longer. And we'll have a certain other character in it that's missing that appears in, for example, the Lego set of this scene. I yeah. was going to say, what did <laughs> they tell <laughs> Lego? Bayon's supposed to be there <laughs> if you're going to listen to Lego. I loved it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I, that whole scene was unexpected and the better for being so. I mean, unexpected in the sense of how fast paced it was going to be mm. um obviously we'd seen a few of the uh, the dramatic moments in the trailer the wisest and fairest of the middle earth beings suddenly getting caught up in this down and dirty fight was mm-hmm. pretty damn good um i especially like the fact that uh, that galadriel got to get involved with something physical although part of me was a bit um, put out that she'd got slightly shortchanged on that front, but then again, 
they run the risk of turning her into another Eowyn if they just go, we'll give her a sword and get her to stab things. Mm. Yeah, I like the fact that her, her weapon was basically uh, Erendil. The, mm. uh, the, like, yeah, well, this uh, is the... Like her, flash fry her, that orc. Her power is the light. That's the whole point. That's, that's what Galadriel is. She brings... Uh, uh, light in the context of wisdom and knowledge to terrible situations and thereby makes them better. And we also got to see the fairly unexpected return of Dark Galadriel. Yes. Oh, that was so good. The The idea that this um, this immense power that she was able to um, to focus and to use drained so much of her um not just her energy but her essential goodness and and kind of separated her from being herself i did think they over egged the um the effects a little bit just a shade i I would have liked them to dial it back just a little bit um but the it kind of informs then on the scene where Frodo offers her the ring because what comes out of her in that moment is clearly harking back to this mm. obviously written in reverse but you know what I mean when yeah. you look at it from a from a, a it adds perspective. perspective to that yeah. exactly and the idea that this um this dark queen that she has the potential to be is something that she has tasted before and how easy it would be for her to become that. And because she would have the ring, there would be a source of power that means it wouldn't necessarily drain her to the point of death this time. Mm. So it kind of intensifies the idea of that temptation for her and makes the fact that she turned it away even more uh, emphatic. Galadriel's a really interesting character in the um sorry, interesting is the wrong word. Very powerful very powerful character from the um the Silmarillion. I mean Galadriel's one of the oldest surviving characters. She, you know, uh, she's from the High Elves, but one she's an, essentially an old Orion princess. She's one of the oldest and most venerable of the elves. She's like thousands of years older than Elrond. Yeah. Um is essentially cursed because of her, her entire bloodline was cursed in the Silmarillion and not her fault, but she was related to the people who were doing some horrendous things. And that's why she's stuck in Middle Earth for so long. She's not allowed to go home because of the curse. So there is this kind of a dark element to her because of that. And Tolkien was in the process essentially of rewriting a lot of her backstory at the point he died. You he, he, he go through the notes in Unfinished Tales and so on. He's rewriting a lot of, seen, of um, certainly earlier pieces that Galadriel was part of in his writing and changing her backstory quite a lot to make her more important because i think writing lord of the rings he realized she's actually a more important character than i thought she was so he's going back and seeding her back into silmarillion a little more i think i might need to get hold of the silmarillion and read it <laughs> she's not in it a lot but she's part of she's um i can't i can't say her uncle or her cousins or whatever are basically the people who cause the the elves to be cursed and banished and and because of this, she's the last surviving member of that bloodline, she's the, the curse all falls on her. She's that's why she's stuck in Middle Earth. Again, there's a lot of unexpected things in this. For a start, the the imagery of her stealing through um, Dol Guldur like a ghost was incredibly powerful. That blindsided me completely. Um, and the uh, the Dark Galadriel coming out, it felt like just being around Sauron was enough to um, to taint everyone else uh, in the vicinity with evil and it would require all of their power to basically repel that 
But to actually repel him, Galadriel had to pretty much touch the dark side, as it were, to, to get that far. The fact that it leaves her in a state of having to recover and, and basically go into Lothlorien for a good, what, 60, 60 to 77 years just to recover from that, it leaves a scar on her. I think she's she's used as a great example of what the ring is capable of and and the ring as a metaphor of this ultimate power that potentially corrupts absolutely mm. because um, you have that brilliant moment when um, Gandalf turns the ring down and says uh, that that he would use it from a desire to do good but through him it would wield a terrible power um, and you've got the fact that the only people who ever managed to carry the ring for any great length of time are uh, Gollum and Bilbo and uh, Frodo and they never use it for anything big they only use it for tiny things um, and that's why the the it has no real power through them because they're not trying to use it to do anything with it and then you've got um, uh, Boromir as well potentially wants to use it to do great and good things to defend but because Galadriel's the only person of great power that you ever really see um, and actually have a visual example of what she would potentially become if the ring was in her possession. Um, she's kind of the, the example of why it should never go to anybody who is that powerful. And even here, you see that that power has great um, great defensive uh, characteristics and they could really use it you know some somebody with that strength and with that ability would be immensely helpful to their side but the potential that it has for destructiveness is is too great it's too risky basically Thorin's dragon sickness. Now, this can cover basically the entire section where Thorin goes uh, into his ancestral home and turns into a son of a bitch. Um, because he does, and that there's... I'll say it straight away. There is a heavy subtext here of uh, very pertinent social issues that have, have uh, affected the world right now. They were affecting the world 150 years ago when Charles Dickens was writing The Christmas Carol and trying to get the one percenters to pay attention and, and be more considerate of the poor and they're affecting the world right now. And it just feels like this is a very timely uh, reiteration of the, if you behave like this, you will only sow doom for everyone. 
There are a couple of really nice bits with this whole section. I think the bit I like the most is the part where Bileen is and is chatting with Bilbo and Bilbo's basically saying, if he had the Arkenstone, would he actually be any better? And he says, no, I think it would actually be yeah, worse. Nice, yeah. Yeah. It's a lovely and the way they sort of thing, where they sort of say it to each other. It's like Balin knows Bilbo's got it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That that's basically is they made his character a bit more just to be that the, the person that Bilbo can talk to that yeah he knows won't won't spread it around because James knows but not as tactical. Yeah. Also, Balin's very wise and yeah. really really understands and knows Thorin. It's very important that it's him that he speaks to. Although when Dwalin uh, speaks to Thorin later on, that's one of the best scenes in the trilogy for me. This, he's so sad coming to his leader and pretty much begging him, would you please reconsider this? No, I mean, we're all with you on this, but only because we're loyal to you. We don't agree with this. I thought Dwalin was largely underused until that scene, but that scene kind of <clears throat> justified everything, like everything, because because they've got so many dwarves. I, I swear some of them don't even have any lines in, in any of the three films. But for me, that was Dwalin's moment, and that was that was so well. That could have been any of the dwarves, but I thought the way that they did it with Dwalin was yeah. just so well done. Especially since Dwalin is a berserker, he's just the guy who goes mental in battle and smashes things. He's their Hulk. And yet he's the one who reaches out to Thorin in this incredibly sensitive, gentle way to say, look, I understand. I, I can't begin to understand what you're going through with this. And we're here with you, but uh, this is it's poisoning you. And I hate to see this happening to you. And he tells him to leave before he, before he kills him. It's- yeah, that's the bit that seals that scene. Yeah, I, I think they went a bit possibly overboard on the... You know, subtle, like the non-subtlety. Um, <laughs> like as soon as he starts getting like slightly all gold, god, he wears exactly the same clothes that Frayn yep. was wearing, and you know, he wears the, pretty much uh, the same coat as Denethor wears. Thor was Thor was wearing. Thor, yeah, his grandfather's um, crown. And he just suddenly, and he, he he's also he, he starts walking differently. He sort of like walks like on oh, a sort of slightly older man, sort of. Yeah, like, he's tottering um, around the place, going. And that they make they give the camera kind of a woozy kind of like it's sliding yeah. when you see him. They make it pretty blatant, but again, the Hobbit is for seven year olds, and yeah. they needed to make absolutely certain that seven year olds got that um, this isn't just coming from Thorin. What's surrounding him is poisoning him. It's not just that he suddenly turned asshole, yeah. although it required him to have that within him to begin with. They do a little hint to show that the, the, the kind of dragon sickness affects all of them. Mm. When, um, when is it? Uh, when Killy arrives. Killy and Feely, Killy and Killy, yeah. yeah. When they arrive, they try to stop them from seeing it. Yeah. I think, you know, if you see the gold, we, we know it was going to do the same thing to you. And you see that look on their face when they see the gold. It's like, yeah, we tried to stop you seeing that. There's a, a wonderful uh, line uh, in it, uh, actually, which is one of the, uh, it's the name of the song that's actually playing at the time. It's Beyond Sorrow and Grief which I thought would be attributed with the, the, the fact that after Lake Town had been destroyed, that what had gripped everyone there was beyond sorrow and grief. And it comes at around that time, but what it's, it's how Thorin describes, we've got so much gold, we don't have to be sad anymore. <laughs> which is such a ridiculous thing to say. As you say, any number of lives is worth it for this amount of treasure. Yeah, treasure. Says, yeah. I love gold, indeed. <laughs> They make gold, interestingly, in this film, one of the most undesirable elements in existence. 
I, I, I felt like going out into the street and throwing the few pound coins in my pockets uh, at uh, that the, the needy. Just like just take it. But he's presented with a situation, uh, especially when he's talking to Bard through the uh, the wall. But he basically sort of weasels his way around it to the point where um, Bard has him up against a wall. And you literally promised this to us. Are you going to go back on your word? Uh, and we're done here. He displays the temperament of the kind of person who is happy to lie to themselves until they can't lie anymore and then they just try to escape. So the sociopathic tendencies that Smaug had already been displaying then? Absolutely, yeah. I couldn't take that scene completely seriously because I thought when he he sort of he rolled, he sort of looked like he rolled into view um, far, far enough. It felt like a, sort of like a horror film where the, the creepy person you know, sort of rolls into view um, or sides sort of sizes into view rather than like just walking. So I just thought Okay, he's again. It's probably just being slightly heavy-handed. He's acting. Yeah, creepily. they're making him seem more creepy and dangerous. Yeah, like I said, yeah. it, it, it's not the the subtlest of uh, moments. But then, it's worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That when he starts, he walks onto the gold floor. Mm-hmm. I think starts off very well. He's like sort of like more introspective, and it's that is again a bit more subtle. And then he falls into a loopy gold well which looked really bad it's a metaphor for this gold will claim your life and it literally <laughs> yeah. claims his life this would have been like- one of the later things that they shot because obviously it connects to the um the end sequence of desolation which wasn't shot for the original two film sequence so they, they added this scene maybe it would have taken place in some other form but it definitely takes place on the gold river here I think part of the reason why a lot of um, uh, what's going on with Thorin at this point seems a little bit uh, overly metaphorical and, and a bit over the over the top in terms of its obviousness is that the the way that you would have in a completely realistic movie in a, a in a non-fantasy somebody who's going through this kind of thing you would find out about it by them uh, expressing it to other people and uh, and the way they put it across to to those around them but by not having Thorin be able to do that, it emphasises how isolated he's made himself. Yeah. But that, that despite the fact he's surrounded by all of these companions that have been with him since day one, he's, his actions and his, uh, his refusal to communicate any of this stuff that's going on in his head is drawing him further and further away from them. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a couple of moments as well where he... He does one thing and he says something else and it it gets across in a far more straight to the point way than a lengthy dialogue scene where where he he sort of tries to to talk about this with somebody the moment when he gives the mithril shirt to uh, Bilbo, it suddenly struck me when he was saying about, you know, no blade can penetrate this and he's being um, so apparently magnanimous with Bilbo and oh, this is, you know, this is this wonderful thing that my ancestors made and it's marvellous and it's worth so much money and, and I'm giving this to you because you are a true friend and all the rest of it. On the one hand, it almost seems like he's making a dig at these people who he thinks may possibly have betrayed him and somebody's got the Arkenstone and isn't giving it to him. But on the flip side, the way I interpret it was he knows that at some point he's going to try to kill Bilbo and he is trying to stop himself before that happens or, or put obstacles in the way of him doing that. Mithril's shirt's not going to stop uh, Bilbo dying from being 
flung from the battlements. Ramparts, yes. Well, that did occur to me. Should have given me a mithril helmet. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that's uh, Thorin is a very um, real's not quite the word I mean, but he's a very solid character, and everything about him that's put across to the audience is visual. It's how he stands, it's his bearing, it's his hairstyle, it's you know all the things about him that tell these subtleties about his character are all done very very visually. And I actually think it would have betrayed what they'd built up for him if they let that go now. So although what they had to go with was a bit heavier and a bit more um, uh, overly done than possibly was really necessary. I think it was true to where they'd gone with him. And as Alex said, it, it was done in a way that meant that all of these subtleties would come across to the very likely slightly younger audience. Yeah. 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 It's just the main point I had of the, the gold bit was just that it seemed very CGI for CGI's sake. Yeah. Well, um, the, that, you can level but, that at, at a fair few <laughs> bits. At, yeah, it was It was a bit... But again, you see, having this mass of stuff that's basically just yellow metal, when it comes down to right. it, that's all gold is. You know, it's it's become this cornerstone of everything that represents wealth and, and success and uh, security and accumulation within our society. It is just yellow metal. That is all it is. You can't eat it. You can't... You know, you can't. There's nothing um, that that you can do with it that really particularly distinguishes it from anything else, in uh, except in terms of craft materials. It and it was just so uh, so vividly. Um, what's the word? Not crass, but it it looked so cheap in a way, and so tacky to have so much of it, and so shiny in such a big space. Um, that again, as you say, Alex, it it makes it seem like the most worthless thing ever. Yeah, I kind of like the sequence, like and just the the imagery that they went with, and the idea of it. He he, there's a point where he's almost watching him another him drown. Mm. I thought it was all yeah, it, it was all done reasonably well. Like you said, like in, in the absence of a of a longer, more dialogue driven scene, but it was one of those sections of this film which was just that that little bit too long like that it could have done with i don't know five or six less camera shots yeah or, they could have, they uh, maybe could have trimming. sewed it up 20 seconds before it actually did yeah exactly it's, it, yeah. It, it, it's one of those sequences where you get you get towards the end it's like is this still going yeah, oh, oh, no okay now we're done yeah understood i wonder if they could shorten it for the extended edition <laughs> <laughs> no, we went a bit too far with that arrive around this time and start handing out uh, food and blankets to the uh, the townspeople and you know, just to show well this this is this is how you basically 
behave. Uh, even I, mean, I like the fact that Flanduel doesn't even say, you know, I'm not even coming here for thank yous on this one. It doesn't even pretend to act magnanimous. And it's just like, no, 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 this is just what we do because of who we are. But we're totally here for the white jewels. He's just as greedy and embittered as Thorin is. Really like the at the elven armor for the um the sort of the battle armor. I didn't I don't didn't like the sort of the ceremonial guard armor. Mm. Uh, actually, in the the uh the cave their cave, but um I really like the the armor they've got. And I I really like his elk thing. Yes, he rides the riding elk. Yeah. Mainly because it um it's very similar to the mount I have in Dragon Age Inquisition. So. <laughs> It's like, oh, I have that. <laughs> Speaking of mounts, uh, when they uh, come out riding rams later on, uh, yeah. we're the only Warcraft fans here, I think, but uh, the, the dwarves in World of Warcraft originally rode rams, and that was cool. Yeah, I, d- I do like the fact they just have more um, diverse range. They have you know, elk, weird elk things, rams, and a, a boar. A boar. It's, it's nice that it's, it's not just horses. Obviously, they wouldn't be able to ride horses. Of course, yeah. They've actually thought about what would everyone else ride. Yeah. So, yeah, negotiations start. They do not go well. At this point, Gandalf turns up. Uh, and um, uh, when he starts riding around in uh, Dale, I was, it, they were deliberately trying to evoke Minas Tirith, which is brilliant, because I, I was immediately just totally there again, like, yes, Gandalf's here. Things are going to be better. Any yeah, I did. Yeah. I did like um, when he turned when you turned up and talking to Randall and he's telling it's like Randall doesn't care what he stupid wizard says. Yeah, <laughs> I just did. He did. It was very good at showing how different he is to sort of Elrond or Gladriel uh, as an elf. Just that he doesn't think that Gandalf is is sort of you know he's not worthy enough to listen to. Yeah, even though he definitely should be. It's also good. Like, I kind of love seeing um, in these films, like seeing Gandalf whenever he is received in a different area, he's always got a different reception. So you know the uh, the Shire, like you know the young children love him for the fireworks, but the old folk, the old folk don't. Mm. Rohan isn't really sure they trust him. Gondor certainly doesn't. It was interesting. You know, and Elrond does trust him. It was interesting seeing like another completely different reception for this character that, from our perspective, he is always right, is always on it, and always knows what to do. Yeah. Oh, not necessarily always knows what to do. As well. No, okay, but, but knows that something needs to be done. But yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. No, um, uh, while he has misgivings about, that's one of the things I loved about Gandalf, especially in this series. In the Lord of the Rings, it always seems like Gandalf is a little bit more on the ball than he is here. Here, he's just like improvising the whole way through. Uh, which is one, of, yeah. I, uh, effectively, Gandalf is the Aragorn character in this series. So if, if just being able to strengthen him in that regard is, is a wonderful thing. He does. He has that uncertainty about himself and um, that's uh, shored up by Galadriel. And, you know, she, she gives him the support to become the, the wise one that he is supposed to be um, at one point, literally supporting him. Legolas and Tauriel reach Angmar. This really smacked of like, we've got to get rid of these guys for a bit. Let's send them up north and then they can come back around about the time the drama all starts to kick off. Uh, I think it was something, just something about the fact that they, 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 they sat on some rocks and they looked at something that was basically CGI fabricated and then something that was CGI moved from behind a window and they're like, oh God, it seems like something's going to happen. Then the bats turned up, then they rode back again. And Legolas gets in a bit about his mum. Yes, 
it was worth it for that. And I will say this, as much as I found him unappealing in the last one, I, I was, I think, Orlando Bloom's acting in this one, while not the level of the other people around him, was probably the best in the series so far for him, because he had some actual meat to get his teeth into at long last. This is where Legolas goes through his journey from being 97% of a dick in the last one to being slightly less of a dick in this one. Yeah, yeah the, the whole scene doesn't really feel like it added anything at all to me. Mm. It's like, let's go up north and show you this is where the Gundabad orcs are going to be coming from. Uh, let's come back. And then, go back. And then their and horse go, oh, drops down dead because they've run him too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, oh, we yeah, may I be too late and we have to go back again. Yeah, Yeah, I think the only reason is just that people know oh, where did this other orc army come from? Otherwise, it's just like, oh, another one happens to turn up from this place that we've never mentioned in Lord of the Rings film before. Yeah. The elfin dwarf armies turn up. Now, here is my bitching point. This is the only part of the film that made me go, and from checking with Sharon, it probably didn't even bother people. Most people wouldn't even have noticed. What do you think annoyed me about this bit? The dwarf armies turn up. Is it Billy Connolly? Not the fact that he... Look at that. <laughs> he went straight there. It took me ages of beating around the bush, James, to get What to that. bothers me about Billy Connolly, James? That he did it. <laughs> he's not playing Dane. He's playing Billy Connolly. Yeah. He's well, the, the audience went, <laughs> it's Billy Connolly, is, before he even is, turned up. Is there enough writing to be able to play Dane? I liked the actual <laughs> design of Dane. He had uh, like tusk type. That, that that beard had kind of boar tusks. Dane was a really I, cool kind of. Uh, I don't know how much you guys know about the Warhammer fantasy mm-hmm. setting. Dane, the way they've done it in this, he is basically a troll slayer from Warhammer fantasy. Oh, nice. He's got you know the ginger hair and yeah. the gratuitous the over large weapon. Yeah, and head and headbutts people. Yeah, and I liked Dane. See, I, I loved I loved him as a character. Like the, when he when he suddenly turned up, because you hear him before you see him, long before you see him, mm-hmm. and he's one of those people with an instantly recognisable voice. And I had absolutely no idea he was in this. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, I, I already knew that Stephen Fry was in Desolation Smack before I even stepped into the cinema, so I was kind of looking forward to seeing him. This sudden surprise appearance. I don't know why, but it did, it, and I kind of recognise that it's a little bit cheesy. But I absolutely loved it. For me, it was like this has just, this has just made this that little bit more brilliant. I kind of, in my head, I kind of thought, I wonder if this is kind of almost trolling the people. There are certain yeah, people, troll. certainly among writers, that hate um, hate the trope that all dwarves have to have a Scottish accent because no one knows where and that's going. And be like Gimli. And be like Gimli. Yeah. The, the fact that, that you've got the one of, uh, an even stronger Scottish accent from a very, the very most Scottish, Scottish man ever. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was like, okay, this is quite cool. And then as his, his scenes progressed, and you end up with Billy Connolly nutting orcs to death yeah. 
I thought all you need to do was just maybe put that on the on the poster, or even rename it The Hobbit. Billy Connolly nuts orcs to death. The nuttoning. The nuttoning. <laughs> I would love this. I love. I absolutely love and this. I kind of. I, I saw it as a decision that a lot of people would hate or not be particularly impressed by. I freaking loved it. And um, Billy Connolly has gone on record as saying, I don't like Lord of the Rings much. I don't like people who do like Lord of the Rings. He has nothing but contempt for the fans as well. So, again, it's, it's like triple trolling by sticking Billy Connolly in. Yeah. But it wasn't the fact that it was Billy Connolly that bothered me. Cause that, can anyone? No one's put a finger on it yet. I'm not saying, because I know. <laughs> Okay, folks, I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. He wasn't fucking there. Dane was an entirely CGI creation, and it's only me with my oh! elf eyes who can spot that. No one else noticed. He, oh, really? He's a completely CGI character from something like Beowulf, which would have been fine in Beowulf because it's a CGI film. Uh, but they've been doing dwarves played by full-sized men and half-sized men for years now. Why now? Why suddenly, at the 11th hour, at the very f***ing <laughs> end, do we suddenly get an entirely CGI guy when we don't need one? And that troubled me. Because Billy Connolly couldn't handle the hammer that big? I'll sod that. Give it to Brendan Gleeson, then. <laughs> In all seriousness, the kid had given it to Brett, the uh, guy who played uh, uh, Gimli's stunt double, and basically had Billy Connolly do the voice and Brett do all the fucking ass kicking. That's fine. We didn't. I wouldn't expect Christopher Lee to kick that much wholesale ass. I'm not crazy. I know how the stunts work. However, this was a CGI stunt. You know how they basically they replaced their version of Azog with a CGI creation pasted over the original actor and got him played by Manu Bennett. That works for me because Azog is a <sighs> triumph because that kind of person doesn't really exist. You can't get someone of that scale. And I, I suppose feasibly they could have just got Lawrence McCorey, covered him in giant white makeup and like sized him up. But there's something about the way that Azog's face moves that has a cruelty to it and a, an expressiveness, which Lurt's never really managed, not in the same way he's acting through the makeup. But Azog is definitely a character. However, to bring in an entirely CGI dwarf and have him flopping about the place leading a CGI army that, crucially, we never got to meet. What were Dane's men like? What were they thinking? What were they... They, were just, they just turned up, led by this CGI guy who went turned up, nutted a bunch of orcs. I... I it, it just troubled me. And it may not trouble me in a year's time, and it certainly wasn't enough to wreck the movie, but, I mean, what were the bits in... Uh, uh, this was the Mouth of Sauron bit for me. Only with that, it was clear they didn't know quite what to do. With this, I don't get why. They didn't just stick Be Brendan Gleeson in a suit, same as they have for every other dwarf, that they managed brilliantly with these other 13 guys, the little bastards, as uh, Peter Jackson calls them. It stuck out like a sore thumb, and I'm going to be the only one that this bothers because none of you even noticed. <laughs> no, no, didn't notice. Next time you yeah. watch it, folks, and when you watch it on DVD, like, <laughs> yeah. the way his face moves, it's not quite right. Yeah, it's it's got that kind of like I'm a creature from a video game kind of thing going on there, and Billy Connolly's voice is coming out of him. And it seems like he's real, but he's got that wibbly thing going on. And Sharon said, well, they needed him to ride a boar. 
fine, get a wibbly guy to ride a ball. But at some point, he's going to get off the ball. And there are going to be points when you're, like, filming him atop the ball, and you don't actually need the ball to be in shot. And for that point, when you're actually getting the acting through his face, acting. There are different bits throughout The Hobbit which make me go, they really probably didn't need to do that quite so much. Back in Unexpected, it was adding CGI faces to the goblins because they weren't happy with the prosthetics. Um, and they, uh, the removal of the use for bigatures has been a huge deal for me because that was one of the things, if you go back and watch the extras, that was the thing that Richard Taylor loved the most and that that Weta were creating these these massive, massive things that seemed so real. And they've actually done a really good job. The, the reason they got rid of Bigatures is because it doesn't work in 3D and it doesn't work in HD. For super close-ups, you'll see that it's a model. But I think I was, I was wondering on this, like, if you see that something's a model in an older film and you think to yourself, oh, that's really fucking good model work. But if you see that something's obviously clearly CG now, you think... Couldn't you have tried a bit harder? Why do we have this disparity? It's an actual question. I, I, I would like to know the answer. Because it seems like we appreciate model work because we can see the actual effort that's gone into it. That's not saying that like immense amount of effort didn't go into Goblin Town. There's so much detail in there. The whole thing's made out of repurposed like wagons and kitchens and bits that the goblins have stolen. It's so detailed. But for some reason, because it wasn't practical, it feels more like it might melt away. There was a lot more green screen for this series. And unfortunately... Dane left a rather foul taste in my mouth. It tasted like haggis. <laughs> my, perspe- my, my perspective is slightly different because you know, coming from a video game background, yeah. you sort of see the amount of craft that goes into creating CG. Of course, yeah. I've seen up close and personal for over a decade now. So of course, yeah. I don't, I don't have that same detachment. To me, it still seems like obviously bad CG is bad CG, or it's not. Yeah. But I, when I see that kind of thing, I look at it from point of view of I have seen people do better work than that. Yeah. It's not that I don't see the value in the amount of time that goes into creating i'm aware of how much time goes into creating cg it's just that bad cg is still bad cg and there's a lot of quite rubber legolas for example in this one as well coming up <laughs> oh my and god rubber legolas <laughs> <laughs> there's the thing the one scene in the the large battle that i didn't like was the incredibly tiny bjorn cameo which yeah yeah you miss it, miss it. <laughs> yeah yeah, Bayon and uh, Radagast are now two of Lyra's absolute favourites. So when they turned up, I was like, "Yeah!" And then they disappeared again. I'd, I'd see him again, possibly extended. I would hope yeah, he, um, but, um, he, gets, he gets dropped from an eagle, turns yeah. in there, hits one person, and that's it. And that's yeah, all so, CG. So the actor's not there at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think in the book he bites, bites through all the orcs and kills. Yeah, the, he kills the Azog, doesn't he? Yeah. Or, oh no, Azog. of course, because Azog was dead already at that point. Yeah, the bolt. I think it's, is it bolg? I don't know. I bolg, think, I think it's the main. Yeah, main. main, um, main saying about the the difference, I, it's, I think people still just put a lot more value in physical stuff. Yeah, because um, it's all like like um, video games. There is a detachment again about a physical disc and a digital product. There is, think- there is a there is a perception that something that's created on a computer must take less effort and. Yeah. Like I said, it's a perception that I don't have as much, but that's purely because of the work I do. So I know that I absolutely accept that a lot of people have that view. You have to see that unless you know you're down there with your chisel and you're carving away on your block of stone, it's not physically real. 
I think it's yeah. just down to the fact that they. I don't get why this one dwarf has to be CG. It seems like because we could or because we chose to, we decided we were going to push it and just do a CG dwarf. And clearly they succeeded because no bugger else noticed. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am perfectly happy with CG to replace models if the CG is good enough. Yeah. Um, but the problem is where it yeah, gets to is like you could do a model or you could do CG, but then if the CG isn't as good, then that shows that you just didn't want you didn't think it was worth making either either making a model which would or mm. making better CG. It probably would have um, been different if Dane had actually been a dramatic role, because remember Gollum gets to act. Even the great goblin gets to act. Azog gets to act. Dane just turns up and nuts things. But if you <laughs> think Brendan Gleeson in Beowulf, entirely CG version of Brendan Gleeson, does so much face acting and so much performance capture. I love performance capture, and I will champion that. But there was no performance in this. It just seemed like, oh, we couldn't get Billy Connolly into the armor. He was special. So uh, we made one for him. We made a, a CG puppet for him. I was just going to say, is it possible that if he has that much contempt for the series, that they basically asked him to be in it and he said, I'll be in it, but only if I don't actually have to turn up? In which case, you recast. I'd have been well, yeah, day. I agree. At that point. <laughs> I can do a Scottish accent. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> I'll have um, to take some elocution <laughs> lessons from uh, various members of Kin and Rents. That was better. <laughs> it's a diff- um, different region. The, the 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 main thing I I miss in in the Hobbit is the perspective that they couldn't do because not have you know having Gandalf not really there yeah. with the Hobbits doesn't you. and the dwarves doesn't it just doesn't it's not as good. Seeing Ian um, McKellen fall to pieces and have a, in his own words a little cry about that scene in uh, Bag End at dinner time, which he was denied being in. Yeah. Um, it it breaks my heart. But just doesn't, he just doesn't look anywhere near as good. Yeah. Um, they haven't really reached the point where the uh, the meshing of the two film mm. looks good enough. They have to um, do that, and they have to push things forwards and technology forwards. I just wish this hadn't been the film that they did that. <laughs> like, do that with a Tintin film. Brilliant. Do that. I don't care about Tintin. It's the same, it's the same thing with the high frame rate, isn't it? Yeah. It's like high frame rate there's certainly some interesting cinematic things you can do sure. with that push things forward why with the, the lovely bones how about that why why this film why why a big high epic fantasy movie yeah. do you go for the the film format that makes everything really over hyper real why not save that for something like say fight club i i think where it might benefit from the the higher frame rate. in the same way as with the rig with um getting mckellen to basically folks if, if you've not seen these extras uh, basically mckellen sat in an entirely green room very oppressive acting out the scene with invisible dwarves and then being told, no, you just put your hand through Boffer's head and going, oh, for God's sake, and feeling really out of it while next, like in a room next door, they're having a great party without him and the cameras are exactly slaved to each other so they're moving at exactly the same time. And it was a great idea and a great technique. When it turned out to really not bring the best performance, they'd invested so much in the tech, no one really wanted to say, let's just put Ian in the back as normal, and then just inflate him when we do the digital edit. <laughs> because they can totally do that, but they didn't. They used the same system for the um, 
meal with Bayon yeah. in the um, second movie. Well, I think that's more in the extended version, isn't it? Yeah. You see more of that, but yeah, because uh, again, you see they put didn't bother him so much Bayon. though. He's a hermit in real life. He li- he lives like yeah. Bayon. <laughs> also, the problem I have that is when he picks up the mouse, you can see that's not James Nesbitt next to him. <laughs> Really clearly, it's like, yep, that's not. Didn't I read that um, all the guys who played the dwarves and Martin Freeman um, tried to cheer Ian McKellen up by bringing him loads of party food and snacks and st- and presents oh. to his trailer or to the green? No, room they uh, they the day afterwards um, he came into his like tent. And the wetter had basically dressed it up, filled it with fruit baskets and flowers, and made it look wonderful. And he he was out, he genuinely was touched, and he kind of got over the initial scare. Because remember, this was like the first day of filming for him, so they were like, "Right, so glad you're here, Ian. Thank you so much. Here's the costume. Get in the green room. Yeah, yeah. this is what it's going to be like." I I think part of it, and I've probably said this before, um, but it's it's reinforced by the idea that it didn't really bother. um, The reason it didn't bother Bayon quite so much um, is because McKellen was coming back to something that he had previously Mm. really, really loved and had been a massive part of his life. And he was probably anticipating coming back into that environment Mm. again and being surrounded by people that he really clicked with and really warmed to and and getting to engage with all of those people again. And then the scale version of old Bilbo at the beginning of Fellowship the real Ian McKellen was across the room directing his double and saying, right, I would, I would be a bit like this. And the real version of McKellen was talking to the scale double of the, the tall, tall Paul to when uh, Ian Holm came into view. So they were still totally there and acting off each other. And this wasn't the same. But if you're expecting one thing and you get something else, then that brings a, a whole wave of uh, feelings forward that are not the same thing as if you're coming into something that you've never done before and you don't really have any expectations of it. Yeah, yeah that's why I'm glad they had so much White Council stuff because it gave him a chance to act with people there with the right size um, and the, the extra bail and stuff um, in the extended of Smaug. Okay, so the sandworms out of Tremors turn up and all of those things <laughs> come out. Are those in, in any form of Tolkien lore? Because I did look at those and I think, uh, what? They don't seem familiar to me and I've read a lot of Tolkien, so... Yeah. They're in Dune. I might be wrong, but... Because <laughs> they were going on about, like, oh, they, these people have forgotten the ancient Earth Eaters. I'm like, oh, you're right, so have I. So did Tolkien. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just a good way of getting them to not just advance over the hill. Okay. Okay, right. They are in. They are in Battle of Middle Earth two. Oh, nice. Okay, so they're invented by a video game. <laughs> yeah. um, As was Dane. Two minor points. Two minor points. First of all, where did they go after they? So they, okay, they they carved the tunnel so that the orcs could fight. Yep. Where did they then go? Why did they not stick around to you know eat a few things like Muma kill? Yeah. Secondly, where did all the earth if, go? Yes. Like that, don't they poop it out the back or something? I, I don't just, know. Yeah. Into the dwarf. Well, that makes no sense because there wouldn't be any tunnels then. That's true. That, that, that doesn't make sense at all. Hmm. Um, what- sorry. Apparently, um, there was mention of them in The Hobbit. Okay. They said wereworms. Uh, oh, wereworms. That was it. Well, did they just turn yeah. back into men at some point? <laughs> <laughs> it's a full moon. Oh. <laughs> 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 
as I say, they seem to just be a, a, a myth rather than a, something yeah. that actually pops up. I think I was going to say what you're going to say, which is that if they've got these massive worms, why didn't they use those to break the siege? Yeah, <laughs> you could why not go into Erebor. Into the mountain. <laughs> totally. Imagine that uh, one of them bursting through the treasure. That'd be awesome. You could yeah. make an argument for rock. Uh, different, it's the wrong type of rock. <laughs> it, they could only be able to go through like softer rock and that's then that's, that's like granite really or something. Fussy eater. What a fussy worm is that? I do not eat mountain. You get a little bit of battle fatigue watching this, where it's like, it's just guys oh, hitting guys at this so point. So much. The, and I've seen this scene before, and I've seen this scene before, and this is the same scene but shot from the other side. It, again, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily help it that it feels a lot like Rohan when the um, the townspeople in uh, uh, from uh, in Dale hiding from the Gundaband orcs, and it's just the savagery of that moment. It it very much reminds me of the Urukai. This is one of my favourite um, quotes from Mark Twain: "History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme." I love that. Yeah. <laughs> For me, this film really was proof that, they, that yes, there is a limit to how long you can watch men with swords hit <laughs> men with swords. Like, I... From the moment... For, basically, from the moment the were I was there with Troy. Up, I don't know if you ever saw that one. That had Orlando Bloom as well. I'm, I'm forced, and Kingdom of Heaven. That, that had Orlando Bloom as well. <laughs> I see a pattern here. And, no, like, I mean, for, for me, like, from, from the moment the wereworms turn up, all the way to Thorin collapsing and Azog dying mm. is one long action sequence, which admittedly you know, moves around and there is very, very occasionally a break where someone says something. One very, very long battle. Mm. And it gets to points where, like, CGI Legolas is jumping around the Minecraft bridge <laughs> and because those, those bricks are all equally square. So it would be great if he's like, oh, I need this bridge to collapse. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it's you, you get to that point, and I was just sitting there, and genuinely, I was sitting there, like, "How is this still going on? How long has this got left?" There was some, there's something about the way that like Legolas goes, "Okay, I've got to get over there," <gasps> and then he transforms into CGI Legolas, and because he's <laughs> Legolas, there's always something like there's a troll he can jump onto, or a bridge, or a thing. Yeah, at that point. Although it kind of served the plot for there to be something, it, I kind of wanted there to be nothing Legolas could do. Where he's like, I've run out of arrows, I've got nothing left. I could jump to my death, or I can make my way down slowly. I've literally got nothing. For the first time in his life, he is powerless. But he wasn't, because there's always something. And he's like uh, Jason Bourne, but of Middle Earth. <laughs> he can turn a troll into a bridge. Speaking of trolls, like the continued uh, poor use of trolls by the orc army, my favourite was the uh, the one that has a large brick tied to its head. Its sole purpose <laughs> is to smash through a wall and then lie down with a headache. It's like, well done, you've done well. Now go away. I thought that was. I I, I imagined him actually, you know, killing himself yeah. doing that. Yeah, I think that impact. might have I, been implied. I, I think that's a you know a logical thing for them to do. Again, that reminded me of the berserkers at uh, Helm's Deep. They they yeah, fill their helmets with human blood and then go mental and just charge at the enemy until they 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 die drowning in human blood. I thought most of the action scenes were fine. <laughs> really, I think I, for me they they broke it up enough. Hmm. Um, it wasn't just like one slog. It was you do the it being the planes, the bit in day or hmm. um, and also unlike you, James, um, I cared about the people of Lake Town. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, I didn't. It's like, oh no, the extras are going to get hurt. I, I, I think mainly because Frandor's he's so cool. <laughs> like, char- he, 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 charging around on his elk, he, ch- he charges across the ridge using the, you know, the massive horns. That and then bit was cool. Yes. Gets shot and he rises up and then starts killing everyone. It's like, like really said, cool. Were, he's his father's son, son's father. <laughs> <laughs> There were enough cool moments to each part of the battle mm. that kept me hooked, but it was just it was just the overall sense of I am just watching people beat the crap out of each other for the best part. And IMDb Tribius claims that um, I think it's like the the longest it's the longest action sequence at forty five minutes. It's definitely more than that. It is definitely more than forty five minutes. Hmm. I think for me the re- part of the reason it felt fatiguing is I've seen films with very long action sequences like this that do it better yeah mm. well there's a film the two towers ago. for example yeah <laughs> well it, just in terms of this ridiculously long just a, sing, a single fight that lasts this long yeah. there's, a, there's a Takeshi Miyuki movie called 13 Assassins which does the same kind of thing it ends with on a massive hour long battle sequence and it that never felt like it dragged in the way that this sometimes does mm. so it can be done it's just <clears throat> well again this didn't really drag for me because I, I again i was like going i've only got minutes left in middle earth now i am counting these down True. and treasuring each one that i can get and i cared about um what was happening to the individuals in there but it, it definitely was the lesser of the if you count uh helm's deep and um minas tirith uh palinor fields helm's deep helm's deep to me i thought was yeah, the best they've done in these movies. Pinnacle. It's it's got that Zulu yeah. feel to it. The, the, they spend all of that time building up, which is very important. And it had a simplicity about it. They're outside. They want to come in. We've got to try to stop them coming in. And then that was where the tension lay. And there's something very scary about the Urukai as well. Mm. Yeah. It was it was good. Like, like I said, like, you know, I sound like I'm complaining. Like I I enjoyed it. I will enjoy watching it again. Mm. It was just the first time round. It, it was. I, I think Glenn puts it down perfectly. It's battle fatigue. Yeah. Ravenhill is the first, well, is, is a significant deviation from the actual original text. Around about this point in the book, and this is when I do my Tolkien edit on it, Bilbo gets knocked out and then spends the rest of the fight pretty much unconscious. I mean, he, I think he gets to see that. I don't know if he gets to see the eagles flying in, but uh, yeah. he, he in the book, I think it's the, the eagles, eagles first. Yeah. I guess yeah, he sees the eagles, then gets knocked, then gets knocked out, out, and then that's it. And that's a hell of a lot of stuff that he misses. Tolkien has no interest in showing exactly what happens to Thorin. And this is after um, Richard Armitage has managed to claw Thorin back from being cartoonishly Shakespearean crazy on a Denethor level to actually being a guy who's trying to redeem himself. And uh, I've been a Thorin fan since the very beginning, and this was like a you know kind of a cheer moment for me. For if we go back a little bit, when uh, he comes out of the uh, light, and already because he's divested himself of the furs, I knew he was all right, and um, it just felt like a very warm moment at long last. And you, I needed this bit, and um, so yeah, when he embraces with uh, 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 Keeley, and um, that then leads up to the dwarves all charging out and being the spear point 
that's a, it's a, a wonderfully kind of heartening recovery, I suppose. I did love that bit where the the dwarves ran out. That, like you said, like it, it is the fellowship. It is the uh, it is the Aragorn mm. running forward for Frodo moment. Yeah. yeah, but there was a small part of me that thought, "What's going to happen to Ori what, <laughs> with his slingshot?" <laughs> but there was a small part of me that thought, "Hang on." Billy Connolly turned up with a very large dwarf army yep. that is now not as large, yep. and you're adding thirteen people to it. Wow! Yeah. What difference is that going to make? Uh, also, also they're not wearing all the armor they just were wearing. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, I think they're taking off. Yeah, yeah, which actually, um, I forgot to mention that. Um, I did quite. I like that when they're on the battlements because Gloin was wearing the helmet that Gimli wears in, yeah, I that, in yeah. the yes. Lord of the Rings. Um, and yes, they take off most of the armor and they charge out. It's, be- the, it's because this is a film with heroes and they are heroes. Yeah. It's the only explanation. Like, yeah, otherwise, 13 dwarves does not make a difference. 13 dwarves would yeah. very swiftly deplete to one dwarf bomber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a film with heroes as opposed to people who are quite keen on staying alive, if you don't mind. <laughs> yes. Um, but then this this leads on to Ravenhill, which obviously is a diversion from the uh, uh, original, um, like just all-out battle. Which, if you as as read, the battle is just like a giant plane. It doesn't take place in Dale at all, and it's it's just a bunch of armies smashing into each other, which is not particularly interesting or fun to watch. So yeah, bringing it up to Ravenhill makes it much more personal, and then gets very personal when Azog springs the trap and kills uh, Feely. So I think this was the point where the tension started. I, I could, the reason Tadiel is in the film at all is so that someone really cares about uh, either Feely or Keeley. In this case, it's 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 Keeley because they are the written casualties of the book. And Bilbo finds out about that around about the time Thorin's dying. It's like, oh yeah, Keeley and Feely died as well. Oh, that's really sad. Okay, moving on. And then Thorin gives him his final words. And then Bilbo goes, yeah, okay, I'm sad. Now I'm going to go home. And it has that kind of somber tone, but you're never really there for it. And this is a way to make it very immediate and to give someone... I mean, technically, there are about ten other dwarves who could really care that Keely and Feely die. But we also needed some female energy in the film. Given that um, Keely gets a lot more screen time, a lot more dialogue, a lot more to do than Feely... By the point of Ravenhill, and you see the two going, and they, you know, they split up. So you go this way, that way, that way. I found I actually cared a lot more about Feely than I expected to. Ah. So when uh, Feely gets killed, um, and Keely goes mental, hmm. I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Let's go kill orcs." Feely starts getting scared in the tunnels. He's like, "There's sounds, and it sounds like it's going to be a trap." And he's like, oh, "I don't like this. I'm going to get out of here." And then the tension starts in. And there's this inevitability about it and the, the, the sadism which Azog exhibits when he's, he's severing this line one by one. And he succeeds. He kills all three of them, severs the line of Durin. And um, sadly for me, the uh, Erebor passes to friggin' Dane. They didn't mention that, but he's the new king. I'm the new king. I don't even like Lord of the Rings. Basically, it passes to... <laughs> I do like this big and chair. <laughs> it passes to Shrek. <laughs> That's the only Scottish I can do is Shrek. I apologise. Hey, um, so the the one thing I felt like we were robbed of was Azog doesn't know Bolg is dead. And I kind of wanted to see just like Azog turning around, looking down on, on uh, that, having, uh, Legolas having just killed his son and going, wow! 
and there being something more in his face, just this like like pang of what we might consider to be the thing we attach the word humanity to that apes attach the word ape to. Something in Azog mourns his son, but we never get to see that. He just basically is is being super sadistic and like a friggin' Terminator with uh, um, Thorin. I mean, he's unkillable. I know Bog's quite a Terminator like with uh, yeah. with Legolas on the Minecraft bridge. He's like, seriously, how are you not dead yet? Yeah. skipping around it but uh, the the Tariel and uh, uh, Keeley scene comes to a head here this was also a way of Fran and Pippa because these are the two that are concerned with this uh, getting the tale of Beren and Luthien into the Lord of the Rings uh, Chris do you want to furnish us with basically how that story plays out the short version uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you quickly. Beren is a mortal man. He falls in love with Luthien, who is an elf. Uh, various epic things happen, and he ends up dying. She goes across the sea to the Valar and cries her song about what's happened. But what happens in that legend is they're both restored to life, and she gets to live out a mortal life and die at a, a normal age with him, which is pretty much what happens with Ar- Arwen and Aragorn, only there's that kind of ambiguous maybe she outlives him thing going on but uh, but in this Tariel is left I thought Tariel was going to die as well I think a lot of people did because there was a sort of uh, a certain kind of Romeo and Juliet tragic romance thing going on here and it, it, it would almost seemed like at the point when she kicked off after Bolg had just killed Keeley and threw them both off the mountain I thought well that's it they're both dead and that's how she chose to go out and I remember Sharon you said you were kind of uh, initially a little, a little annoyed that she was still around at this point that that would basically the point of her choosing and um they they kept her around yeah i mean that that would have been sort of a moment of great sacrifice for her and um a, a fitting end shall we say however it would have been out of grief and vengeance rather than yeah. out of a, a, a no i understand and, and how they out. rounded off how they rounded off that particular line of thinking within her with Thranduil was actually brilliant I thought and and a far better closer for her Um, however that still would have been a better way for Bolg to go as far as I was concerned Mm. because I actually um, found myself getting really irritated by the fact that he seemed unkillable and it was like well it was just the fact that Tariel had made this great dramatic gesture and then had to be saved by Legolas. Yeah, that was kind of galling. But there's something about the fact that Tariel gets left behind and it doesn't conclude her story that leaves it in a note of ambiguity as to how she's going to cope with this and what she's going to do that I found really appealing because they didn't actually make a judgment on what is right or what is wrong to do in this circumstance. And they basically left you and left her grieving and, and trying to learn to understand what had just happened. And the thing that I loved about how it was filtered was Thranduil communicating with her about 
what he had lost. And it occurred to me today, Sharon, what that um, scene reminded me of, because he had just spoken to Legolas conveniently about Legolas's mother and having to lose her. Um, there, you asked me before why I married your mother, because I loved her. Sarak yes. from uh, Star Trek. Mm. It's the same scenario. And he's reaching out and commiserating with her over the fact that they share this, this loss. And you uh, uh, inferred that the uh, the dragon scarring that uh, he got was actually in the same incident that robbed Legolas of his mother and he, him of his wife, and that he had tried that she had sacrificed herself for her son, perhaps. Yeah, I mean that's all um, you know, inferred. as you say, total inference on my part. Um, I actually would have liked there to be a couple more concrete statements that tied all that together because it really is just these tiny little hints here and there that you kind of have to piece Mm. um, into a a whole story Um, and also because we don't know from the Lord of the Rings trilogy what Legolas's attitude towards his mother is the apparent great weight that is delivered with this statement your mother loved you more um, very much more than life It, it looks as though that should have some great meaning to him, but we're not entirely sure why. <laughs> it's, it's almost like before that, Legolas wasn't entirely certain that his mother really gave a toss. Um, I should have mentioned this to you like 2,000 years ago, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. What have they I'm talked sure. about since then? <laughs> I'm not sure why he chooses exile either. It's like, he says, I can't go back. It's like, why? Because you're a total <laughs> dick. Think- it's because of that, his statement about if there's no place for Tauriel, then there's no place for me. And there seems to be this thing, particularly amongst the elves, that once you've made a great dramatic statement in the heat of the in the heat of the moment, him. you can't take it back. No taxis. <laughs> because taxis. they will mock you for it for 5,000 years if you do. <laughs> well, I mean, we fortunately, he ends up meeting his life partner in about 70 to 60 years so uh, that's that's heartwarming and also i love the fact that this has all been leading up to uh, legolas being influenced by tariel to being able to be the kind of person who can embrace a dwarf and step over that prejudice that his people share and push past the prejudice that gimli is absolutely riven with as well it adds a really nice slant onto their relationship as well i, I kind of kept thinking of all those moments when Legolas looks at Gimli with sort of this slightly indulgent, amused smile. And it's almost like, hey, now I can see where that comes from. Obviously, (laughs) I can't because this is retrofitted, but you know what I mean. Of course. But yeah, that's uh, one of the best things that these uh, new three do is to uh, give scope to the originals. But uh, Evangeline Lilly really needs to be uh, commended for her incredibly heartfelt uh, performance here. She was heartbreaking, just as uh, powerful as um, Liv Tyler. And also she got to absolutely kick ass, which is something that I kind of always wished that Liv Tyler had been able to do. I know that there was that whole Arwen Warrior Princess thing they decided not to do for Helm's Deep, but this is basically us getting to see that. Back when we did the unexpected journey, I was uh, because I had seen Tariel in the Lego sets around that time, but wasn't going to be introduced to her properly for another year. I was sort of scoffing that oh, she's just going to be some sort of background elf, and I'm sure she'll add plenty to the series. Turned out she did. I've never been so happy to be wrong, and I should have trusted Fran and Pippa. So the death of Keeley um, again. They could have made this far more melodramatic. 
They could have had like, you know, 14 minutes of weeping and crying and kissing and, and I don't want you to go and blah, blah, blah. But they, they were just like, no, this is what, you know, you've seen these happen before and it, the, the briefness of their time together is what hurts so much because she never really gets to see what happens with that potential. And it's, it's a wonderful way of sort of preparing you for the overarching implications of this, this terrible warfare. It's not just what happens to Thorin and Keeley and Feely. There are, there are other people suffering and dying and there's a lot of people left grieving as a result. So yeah, CGI Legolas flips about the mountain uh, fighting the Bolg Terminator and very entertaining it is. <clears throat> and then um, Thorin squares off against Azog. You know who we haven't really talked about so far much? Martin Freeman. Yeah. For mm-hmm. what he was in this film, he was wonderful. I love the way that Freeman does that little nose twitch. Uh, we, we praise him so much on these shows, it's hard to, to, uh, to feel like we're not over-egging the pudding. But um, the, the, all of the scenes where he's um, uh, thinking deeply about what's the right thing to do, he has a genuine choice to make. And it's not as straightforward as, you know, oh, I've got to keep this away from Thorin. It'll only cause bad things to happen. There is that misgiving where he's thinking, I could actually be saving many, many, many lives, including Thorin's, if I just give it to him. And in the end, he decides that for that same reason, he's not going to give the Arkenstone to him. So yeah, Thorin fights Azog, and it's a brutal um, and bitter struggle. Azog has killed Thorin's grandfather. He's been there when Thorin's father died and definitely helped to, uh, uh, to cut his finger off and torture him for years. He's killed both of his nephews, and he's going to kill him. And there's a feeling of... Do you guys remember Saving Private Ryan? Shamefully, I haven't seen it. Jesus. Me neither. Seriously? It's on my list. It's on Leg, my list have, have you seen it? I have. I didn't like it that much. There is a scene where a German soldier very, very slowly oh, yes. stabs one of the American soldiers. And when I was watching it in the cinema, specifically the thing that makes it the worst is that there's another soldier cowering in the background who doesn't do anything to prevent it from happening. And you're just going, no, 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 no. And the blade's getting lower and lower. And there was that feeling about this with Thorin, like the inevitability of this thing. And it was just this immense amount of power and pressure that Azog's putting down on him. And it's almost like this was always going to happen to Thorin. It's been his fate. It's been pressing down on him since the moment the dragon attacked. And there's a tragedy to that. And again, Thorin is very Shakespearean in that there's a sort of a, uh, there's Macbeth in there. There's a little bit of Hamlet in there. There's a bit of King Lear in there. And especially when he's sort of staggering around on that golden lake, that's very much kind of a King Lear going mad at the terrible things that have happened. And when he's staring out over the, uh, the desolation caused by him and thinking to himself, this was my fault. That's very Shakespearean. There's that moment in the fight where you you sort of realise he knows he's not going to survive this, so yeah, he uses that to take take Azog down by essentially letting Azog kill him in order to get close enough to kill Azog. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's like I can't 
win this you fight any go. other way. Yeah. It's a very powerful, sad moment. And um, I remember somebody, uh, uh, a critic, saying that Richard Armitage was a terrible choice for Thorin because he's a TV actor and he can't compare to people like theatre-trained McKellen. I think he really holds his own in this series against some of the absolute greats across the board, across all six films. He has a real presence to him and a real... that He nails that sense of tragedy. I think he does go overboard on the whole, like, um, the dragon sickness side of things. But again, you have to remember this is really a, a, a film series designed to sort of ease the kids into the hugeness of Lord of the Rings. And if it doesn't do that, it's not really performing its main function. Very, he is that character. It's, yeah. it's, and you need someone good enough to, to play the, you know, the king. Um, it doesn't really matter if some of the dwarves are, uh, you know, their acting's a bit bad, but it, foreign needs to be good yeah and luckily they got someone who was good enough it's again there's a reason why they chose a younger actor as well if you give this to an old man like uh, theoden when he dies at the end of uh, a return of the king it feels natural like he dies eowyn lives the battle was won and it was a worthwhile sacrifice but with thorin um, it needs to be that he's a young man. He has these two nephews. There's, there is a line here. He's going to continue to be able to be king. He can make amends for the mistakes of his ancestors and he can learn from his own mistakes and then pass it on to Keely and Feely, who are in the springtime of their youth, who can also learn from him. And that being taken away by degrees is it's very sad and it's very powerful. Yeah, it's a lot more impactful in the book. Yeah. Um, where, as you said, Philly and Killy die off screen. And, and Thorin's then, old anyway. And yeah, and, and he's just in a, basically just in a tent after the battle. So it's not, you don't see him, you know, he dies when he gets stabbed. It's not, it's not yeah. when he actually dies in the, in the tent. So it's a lot, a lot better. I was trying to work out why um, this, the scene when he uh, eventually squared off against Azog um, with... Uh, uh, Orchrist on the ice why that was different in tone from when he uh, marches down on him from the burning pine tree and the pine tree he's decided he's going to die so he might as well just try and take out Azog uh, in doing so and it's not a, it's not a million miles away in, in that sort of sense of, uh, of um, not being able to escape from one's destiny but at this point it, it kind of feels like he now has something to live for he now has something to defend and he is going to avenge the, those that have been killed. But he can see that Azog needs taking out of this world. And this goes way beyond his personal grief with him. And it's, it goes beyond straightforward anger and rage. The whole point of going up onto Ravenhill was to take out Azog to end the battle, yeah. to save Dale, the, the, the Elves, Erebor, everything. Yeah. There is a lot more. There's actually something at stake this time rather than just a small skirmish between two factions. Yeah, saw quite a few parallels with um, the Aowen Witch King standoff. I mean, superficially because they both got maces, but um, also yeah. it's sort of similar. She doesn't need to fight the Witch King at all, but she does it to save Thad and went and to, to it, she, and you know she ends the battle effectively because once once the Witch King's dead, you're also not going to win. Yeah, it's a very very significant victory at that point, and you're right. That's that's how Thorin redeems himself from being such a terrible, from doing such terrible, terrible things for that short period of time. He effectively lays his life down the line and says, I will 
I will go up there. It's probably going to be. I think he he knows it's a trap. Yeah. Um, but uh, do, do Keely and Feely come with him? Uh, willingly, or I know uh, Dwalin did. Uh, I, I think it's, it's implied that they, that they do, that they all volunteer, that they want to. Having having been hiding in a mountain watching their brethren die, yeah. I think it's implied that they're all jumping at the chance to get in the action and actually do something good. Yeah, yeah. I do the smartest thing. Gandalf says he's taken his best fighters with him. Those are the only people in the, com- in the company who are actually trained fighters. Yeah, yeah. I think also in the book there's sort of implication that, that, that they die because that is their duty as... Um, as his kid standing by him yeah yeah they they need to basically if he dies they should die to avenge him which is um, a really sort of great thing. way to completely cut off your and, line well yeah but um so i think that's sort of, that's that is why they're there it should be the opposite it should be if i die get yourself as far away from this as possible you need well, to yeah, group and save the line there's all like things in like about protecting someone's dead body because of honour, or which is not made up by scared dads and granddads saying, "If I die, you better bloody die as well." Well, it's like um, the household guard has protected the body of the king and then taken it off the ground when they could have actually just kept fighting. Because I mean, the body doesn't really matter at that point. Yeah, um, but just because honour, they have to protect the body because that's more decent apparently than winning. It's a symbol. It's yeah, to rally around and to. Uh, oftentimes in the, the, the thick of battle you need something very straightforward to fight for and if it's right there then you can keep going Again, the the scene with uh, with Bilbo and Thorin Martin's performance and playing off against uh, Richard, um, it's incredibly strong. And the, the the back and forth, and I think it's it didn't really strike me until the point where Thorin has pretty much died, and Bilbo's pointing out the eagles to him. Just he's willing him back to life. But it it's a down, slow, yeah. yeah, it's a slow, quiet. Um, trickling away of hope at that point and uh it's not all hope is lost but um there was there was a there was going to be a good outcome to that battle and it doesn't actually occur because of the various um tragedies that occur within it which is a somber way to finish the saga as opposed to the you know the the, the death star exploding at the end of jedi this is the uh, the i hate comparing it to the star wars trilogy <laughs> And, and, and that other trilogy as well it, it it does have that sense of this is the one we lose and later there'll be one we win I think again as well the idea of bringing it back to the small that all the battles in all the world can rage and they can win however many great wars they want mm. to Bilbo it, it's if losing Thorin is the focal point for him, it doesn't matter what else is won, he's lost his friend. And you could say that, you know, it, it ended happily enough, enough people survived it. The battle was lost the moment they started fighting. They didn't have to have that fight. They could have, had they known about the Gundaband orcs and rallied together, they could have, they would have had to fight them at some point, 
but there would have been less loss of life. There would have been more uh, tactical efficiency that would have allowed them to stand together at the crucial point. And it's Thorin's fault that that didn't happen, yeah. which is exactly what's going through his mind when he's staring out over the desolation. Cool. It's a Shades of Grey uh, um, uh, defeat victory as well, though, because there is a certain um, camaraderie uh, that's fostered between the dwarves and the elves and the men at that point, which then pays off in the War of the Ring, it's they. There is still there is still aggression there between them, but they have sort of stood together to a degree. Uh, so it's it could have ended a lot worse. Could have just been a bloodbath, and Sauron would have won the day. Um, I don't know if it's in the the Hobbit itself or in some other things, but they do say that the um, that area has the the greatest ties between elves, men, and dwarves, just because they have been through that and they are. Yeah slightly less um, opposed to each other. Yeah. And the important thing, especially for you, James, is that Alfred survived. <laughs> <laughs> he ran away with his gold-filled tits. Yeah, he did. Um, just, th- yeah, looking like little John out of the Disney version of Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gone, man. Solid. Solid. Gone. Gone. I know. <laughs> same guy. Same character. And it's... Um, Robert... Yeah, my, my sister did say that when he was like in the, the Great Hall or whatever it was, he did see a bit Monty Python. Yes, the old woman. yes, yes. Very much so. Terry he's Jones. not the Messiah, he's a very yeah. boy. We were very gratified with, at the point when uh, Thorin was going, I would not part with a single coin, not one piece of it. There was a girl behind us muttering that along with it, which is nice. <laughs> Uh, we, our audience was so well behaved. I gotta say, well done to them because they were really in for it and uh, they, they knew what they were getting. There were a few people who were leaving around about this time with the pipe weed and uh, and Gandalf sitting with Bill. We're like, what? We've seen that. We don't need to see the end. Which is a colossal fuck you to everyone who's worked on these films. It's also kind of a fuck you to everyone who's sticking around for the end because it's like saying. Screw you guys, I'm going home. <laughs> That's basically what it is. Yeah. It's um, like, ugh. I mean, it could have been that they were desperate for the toilet, but they were walk they were sauntering down the steps in a kind of I think I've seen enough kind of way. Particularly given that this was the least bladder intensive of the six Middle Earth films. Yeah, yeah. I was actually quite surprised they kept the ending of him turning up to find everything being sold off. Yeah. Because if you're yeah. cutting anything for time, I'd have thought that would be what you'd not do. The scouring of Bag End. Well, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that's... I think that is why it's in, because he cut off scouring. Yeah. Um, oh, I think e- equally, if, you, if you'd have cut out that auction, the ending would have been even more abrupt, or felt even more abrupt, yeah. given the length of the action scenes beforehand. Go back a little bit, actually, to the pipe weed after all of this sadness settled in it's a very quiet somber little moment and then Gandalf sits with Bilbo just in you know not enjoying the moment but just sharing a quiet moment together and then noisily fiddles with his pipe and it's it's done just right if it had been too like overtly silly it would have been like trying to go on laugh you need to laugh right now but it, and if it had been a little bit more sad then it wouldn't have been fun enough but it's just perfectly played enough between the two of them that sense of exhaustion and they couldn't really have been sitting together because obviously scale but yeah. that's a really lovely intimate moment there and um, that's just <sighs> so sad and then they 
he, Bilbo goes home and there's that very brief sort of chat with the dwarves and as you said Chris um, when we, we were analysing the uh, soundtrack without really looking at it too much going like is there going to be enough room for stuff at the end probably no. not <laughs> and there wasn't there wasn't um, all of the uh, Moria stuff there wasn't all of the um, uh, the connective tissue to the Lord of the Rings that I remember saying back years ago that the final film there and back again will probably be concluded around about 45 minutes in after the battle leaving a lot of time for them to sort of say and over the next 60 to to 77 years this happened I think if that had happened more people would have left uh, if if they had like no interest (laughs) yeah and that's, that'd be understandable. That would just have been a fan film at that point. Yeah, I would have liked yeah a bit, just a bit, just to. I did think the whole end with the dwarves and just it felt a bit rushed. Yeah, but kind of feels like very... Bilbo needed to have a dinner with them. Some yeah. Well, even like the, I mean, one of the things I think it's uh, in in the book, like in the last chapter, he mentions that he he maintains a friendship with Barlin. Barlin comes over for tea every now and then yeah so even just a shot of him and Barlin in Bag End I kind of was hoping for as we were getting towards the end just a brief brief shot of uh, Christopher Lee picking up a Palantir or something yeah <laughs> because earlier on you've got him it's like I should deal, deal with Sauron oh that and sounds promising it. yeah it's like oh looking forward to that because we know how that ends but no <laughs> I actually expected him to find the Palantir like in the basement yeah. of Isengard or something but uh, but no I would say it would have been nice to see a bit more Bard, but I think part of his charm is that he's understated. When we were watching it, um, Desolation, more recently, I, I think I muttered something along the lines of Bard being like Hugh Jackman, and then I was thinking, Hugh Jackman would have made a really great Bard. But then I thought, no, actually, because you can't make him really charismatic up against grumpy uh, Richard Armitage playing uh, um, Thorin, because that's fire and fire. You need to have fire and water, and basically he has to be the responsible one. So, uh, you know, you have no right to enter that mountain. I have the only right. It's one of my favorite bits, that bit. Um, So it's kind of important. I was about to say, why is he suddenly Welsh? And then I thought, because he's He's Welsh. He's Luke Evans. (laughs) His daughter is Welsh as well. Why have we got dwarves coming out of our toilets? Will they bring us luck? (laughs) Those two, by the way, gorgeous girls, are um, boffers, kids. Uh, no James way. Nesbitt's girls, yeah. <laughs> Watch your extended edition extras, dude. They're excellent. But yeah, uh, he he got them jobs, and um, yeah, they're uh, it, that's probably possibly just seeing them behind the scenes made me care about them more. But um, yeah, that's. <sighs> I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to stop talking about it. We're going to have to come back in a year's time to to really finally say our goodbyes, and even then, maybe do a revisiting every few years. <laughs> <sighs> to, to see Weta Workshop with an undertaking this massive, uh, in many ways, um, The Hobbit's actually a larger undertaking than The Lord of the Rings. There's certain things that they did which are actually bigger in many ways. It's much safer, and there was a, a, a definite decision to reduce the pain of everyone involved. There's a lot less sort of holding it together with string and what felt like a lot more studios putting their foot down but it still possessed the same spirit that runs through all the films. So, yeah. 
and that uh, the, the journey home and uh, and that little interchange between him and Gandalf, it, it works just right so that you can, if you are a kid, watch the Hobbit trilogy and then the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it makes perfect sense to go through in that direction. Whereas with the Star Wars films, again, keep coming back to them, because it's just three and three, and it kind of makes sense that way, you can't really watch the prequels and then watch the original trilogy. It doesn't, you don't get the impact of Empire that okay. way. That's it, I think. I mean, the, there's a, the, the wonderful way it ends is this this perfect cycle of hearing the other side of the door. Yeah. When for, for 15 years we've had, and what about very old friends? And now that's on the other side of the door. And you can just literally... I mean, it's going to be dangerous, though, because every time we watch Five Armies, the natural inclination will be to immediately jump into Fellowship. <laughs> It's going to become an exhausting watch. Which honestly, it, it, it works. Like I said, like, again, another time I mentioned it, like, we, we watched the fellowship. My uh, my other half, like when when that bit came up, she did because she hadn't seen the fellowship in so long. Yeah, and we'd only seen the Hobbit last night. She's like, oh, that is from. Oh, that's brilliant. And the map is there. And the maps, yeah. I I I kind of gasped at that. Like, oh everything's on the table where it was and Bilbo noticeably cowers behind the window because the Sackville Baggins are outside in the same way that he cowered from Gandalf 60 years previously I, yeah I love they showed the Sackville Bagginses uh, yes <laughs> years have not been kind to them well, it, gives, it gives the um, uh, the costume department like we need uh, like upper class uh, hobbits, hobbits yeah. rather than the, uh, the standard ones um, they finally yeah, name checked Fatty Bulger yeah. the fans oh so, another again. thing for, for fans if you go back and read Fellowship of the Ring it mentions that when Bilbo left dwarves went with him there were dwarves there to basically accompany him in in, in walking and so mm. but I mean maybe Dwalin maybe uh, maybe Boffa I'd love to think of it being Boffa so when he's like you know he's parting ways with Gandalf just after the party there's a bunch of dwarves there with him as well and they go tramping off over the fields. That's a lovely idea. So that means when we get the uh, Martin Freeman 25th anniversary edition. Oh, yeah, just CGI sticking, and some dwarves. Just, just, just James Nesbitt just in the background. Just James Nesbitt. I'm going to leave you with Billy Boyd uh, singing The Last Goodbye. And uh, you folks should uh, check out the actual official music video of this on YouTube because it's got some wonderful sort of moments from the uh, the saga of Middle-earth and uh, the behind-the-scenes moments which kind of make it plain that these lyrics are about Weta and company saying goodbye to us in and this place. And uh, I, I honestly think that in our lifetime someone's coming back to it, whether it's them or not, and uh, there'll, there'll be other stories told, but we'll see. I, I would like a, a you know, 25th anniversary edition or something where <laughs> they fix some of the... Uh... CGI problems. Take out that Wilhelm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe fix the yeah. Black Gate scene so that it actually works. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys very, very much. And uh, this is uh, this is Billy Boyd. I saw the light fade from the sky. On the wind I held a sigh As the snowflakes cover My fallen brothers I will say this last goodbye Night is now 